welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, use without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we come before you expectant. We're expectant because you are our Father, and you delight to feed your kids. You delight to show your glory to us. You delight to fill our hearts with joy as we see who you really are. And so we pray, Lord, that you would do that. You would do that as we look through this amazing book of Daniel. We just thank you, Lord, for giving us this book, this particular book of Daniel, for preserving it for all this time and uh, delivering it to us to read and enjoy. And Lord, give us instruction about how we should live in this world, um, this world that is often quite hostile to you. And, uh, and yet, Lord, your kingdom, as Josh was talking about, your kingdom is, is already broken into this world, broken in by your spirit. And Lord, through your gospel, and is spreading throughout the world. And we just pray, Lord, that you would help us to learn how to live between those two realities, the already and the not yet. The, the kingdom of darkness that is so present here, and yet your kingdom breaking in. We just pray, Lord, that we would leave with a real settled assurance of our identity in you, our place that we have here. And Lord, we just pray that, like Daniel, you would help us to be a blessing to the people that live here. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in this series in the, uh, in the Old Testament where we're looking at uh, kind of how to live in the, the story that God's telling. God's telling a story with all of the world and all of history. All of reality is something that God himself is, is telling as a story about himself, about his son. And the book of Daniel really gives us a, a great way to understand our place in this world. What is our place in this city? What is our place in this country? What is our place in this world? And uh, Daniel gives us a really helpful way to look at that in thinking of ourselves as exiles in the world. Thinking of ourselves as exiles. The book of Daniel is about the Jewish exile in Babylon. God had warned his people for years against their sin, and then finally in the 6th century B.C., so 600 years roughly before Jesus came, God sent judgment to Israel, and he sent it in the form of a Babylonian king named Nebuchadnezzar. 
and he destroyed Jerusalem, and he destroyed their temple, and he hauls off the best and brightest into Babylon to kind of re-educate them for cultural assimilation. It was a way of subduing nations. You take their newest generation, their best and brightest, and you make them like your country. And so Daniel and his friends are a part of that group. Um, They're God's chosen people in exile. And the reason why I think this applies to us is because the New Testament uses this same language of exile for Christians in this world. The Apostle Peter, when he was talking to mostly Gentile Christians, called them elect exiles, God's chosen people in exile. Now, unlike the Jews, we're not in exile because of our sin. They were in exile because of sin. But like them, we are in exile with the purpose of blessing the place he's brought us to. So there's a dual purpose in the exile. Not only were God's people being judged by being brought into exile, but God has gracious purposes for bringing his people into their country, as we're going to see. And so that's our role. We're sent to this place to bless a pagan people who are far from God. Jesus prayed something similar about this. Remember in his prayer, he prayed this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I send them. So we have this sense in which, even if you've always grown up here, you've always lived here, you've been sent here, you're in the world. Jesus doesn't want us to escape from the world or hide out from the world. You want to be in the world, but not of the world, not according to their ways, but clearly for the world. And I think that's really important. We're to be in the world, not of the world, but clearly here for the world, to be a blessing. And that's one of the things you'll notice about Daniel uh, that's really surprising is Daniel seems to honestly care about these pagan kings that are so ruthless. He seems to really want to bless them. And, uh, you know, when there's things brought against Nebuchadnezzar, certain dreams and things that are scary, he's legitimately terrified for Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't want him to get hurt. He doesn't want him to be harmed. He wants his good, which is pretty crazy when you consider that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed their country, destroyed their temple, and kidnapped them. And yet here he is, he wants to be a blessing. And that's not because he was afraid of Nebuchadnezzar. That's not because he has some sort of like Stockholm syndrome. That's because God had given the exiles a mission to bless Babylon. And you can see it in Jeremiah 29. God gave instructions to all these Jewish exiles in Babylon. He said this, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Listen to the instructions they had while they were there. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city, talking about Babylon, where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Isn't that interesting? There's a dual purpose. Not only are the people of God being judged for their sin by being in exile, but they're there to actually bless the Babylonians. And this theme of exile is just a great way for us to think about our place in this culture. Think about yourself as an exile in a pagan land. That might not take a lot of imagination for you this morning, right? This might explain, guys, why you feel so out of place. This might explain why the place you've always lived in doesn't quite feel like home. This may explain why you so often feel like an outsider in your own culture. Do you guys feel like an outsider in your own culture? This explains that. You're in exile. This mission we have as exiles is something we shouldn't try to escape. This is really important for us to hear. Unless you plan on going like full-on Amish, there is no escaping Babylon. 
Everywhere is Babylon, not just California. And they're like, I got to get out of Babylon. You will go to more Babylon. It's all Babylon, okay? You're in exile in this world. Nor should we want to escape it. I mean, like Daniel, God has sent us to this particular place, to this particular people, so that we can bless them and point them to God. That's a great calling, guys. I mean, I think as you see the culture unraveling, and by the way, we were exiles long before, you know, 20 years ago. We've always been exiles as Christians. But as the culture deteriorates more and more, it's right to have godly grief about that. But on the other hand, what a privilege we have to live in this time. God chose you for interesting times. That's a privilege, right? It's a privilege to live as God's distinct people to be a blessing in Babylon. And, um, and we do this in our ordinary life. I think this is so great. Sometimes we forget what Daniel did for a living. Daniel was a civil servant, right? He was like a government employee. He, he was, yes, a prophet, but he wasn't a priest. He wasn't a pastor, none of that. All the ministry he did, he did through his ordinary vocation as a civil servant. And us too, our ordinary lives can be a blessing to this world if we live with a sense of our mission here as we remember that we're exiles. So every place that God has you, whatever workplace he has you in, you are there to be his chosen exile representatives. Yeah, it brings so much purpose to your life, to your ordinary life. But guys, there's dangers, right? There's dangers to living in Babylon as exiles, right? Because the Babylonians actually want to conform you to their ways. Have you noticed? That was the whole reason Nebuchadnezzar brought Daniel and his friends into Babylon. It was to make them good Babylonians, okay? They came with a mission, but Babylon had a mission too. It was a mission of assimilation and intimidation, right? Nebuchadnezzar didn't start with kind of heavy-handed intimidation. He started with assimilation. Look at verse 5 in chapter 1. It says, The king assigned to them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hadaniah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Now you might not notice it, but there's actually three tactics of assimilation here. Three ways he's trying to turn them into good Babylonians. The first was feeding them off the king's table. You think, this is great, you know, we're exiles, we're getting like the best food in the land. What's going on here? Well, it was a way of making them dependent on Babylon. You know, you don't want to bite the hand that feeds you, right? It's to make them more and more dependent on Babylon. And this is a huge part of the way that the culture, our world, tries to conform us to its ways. The main way is to make you super comfortable, to fill you with worldly pleasures so that your loyalty slowly shifts away from the Lord to it, right? How many of you guys are like super comfortable? Your lives are super, some of you guys are in suffering right now, but a lot of you are in a place of severe comfort, super comfortable, right? That's what they were afraid of being is so comfortable that their loyalty shifted away from the Lord. Daniel resisted this in an interesting way. He says, hey, can I just eat vegetables and water and you know, I'm going to do this for 10 days, and, you know, if I look sickly or something like that, we can go back to the food you want to give me, but I want to just do vegetables and water. And people have debated, why is this? Was the food sacrificed to God's? All of it would have been. It's not that the wine and the meat were sinful in itself, but I think what he's doing here is Daniel wants to limit himself to food and drink that is so clearly directly from the Lord. It's not the livestock that was raised. It's not wine that was cultivated. It's water, and it's vegetables straight out of the ground. Why? He did it so that he would remember who fed him. 
who cared for him. And I would just say to you this morning, one of the ways we can fight against this, you know, comfort that, that draws our allegiance away from God is to set patterns in our lives that help us remember that God is the one who feeds us. God is the one who cares for us so that he's the one that deserves our loyalty and our gratitude. We should build patterns in our lives where we intentionally remember that it's God that feeds and cares for us so that we remember that he deserves our loyalty and our gratitude. Um, Stories. They were educated for three years in the literature of Babylon. This would encourage them to think in the Babylonian story, to live according to Babylonian ways, to, to try to kind of immerse themselves in that Babylonian world of thought. We too all have ways, stories we live in. Our culture has ways. Our culture is constantly trying to disciple us and catechize us to think more in their story, to think more in the way of their culture, to fear the things they fear and to love the things they love. And what's interesting is Daniel does not refuse to learn their stories. Did he? And you go, I'm not going to learn any of those. What do you do? He worked really hard and got at the top of his class in Babylonian lit. He was at the top of his class, we find out later. Why? He was learning their stories, not in a way that he would believe them and live in them, but that he would know their stories so he could connect it to the true story of the gospel. So he could connect it to the true story of scripture. We too should do the same. We should understand our culture such that we know what they want, we know what they long for, and we can show them how the gospel story is better. And then there were their names. Nebuchadnezzar changed their names. And this goes a lot deeper than just if you have Babylonian names, you're going to feel a lot more Babylonian. It's what their names meant. Daniel's name meant, God is my judge. Hananiah's name meant, the Lord is gracious. Mishael's name meant, who is like God. Azariah's name meant, the Lord is my helper. Okay, their names constantly reminded them of the character of God, who God is and and what he does. And so what did they do? They gave them Babylonian names, all of them invoking the name of the gods of Babylon, Marduk and Bel and Nebo. And this is a way of assimilation. And it's a very powerful way of assimilation. What our culture wants to do, what the world wants to do is cause us to forget our God, to forget what he's like, or to have just some really vague sense of who he is that's not real accurate, not real helpful. One of the most important things we can do in exile to be faithful is to study and celebrate the character of God. Study and celebrate the character of God. Study and celebrate his triune nature, his holiness, his goodness, his mercy, his justice, his eternality, his unchangeableness, his faithfulness, his love, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his grace, his happiness. He's the happiest of all beings. His glory his wisdom, to just remember who he is. And what's really cool is, as they did this, God blessed them in exile. Look at Daniel 1.15. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the stewards took away their food and wine that they were given to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all the literature and wisdom and Daniel's understanding and all visions and dreams. You know, it's funny. Have you guys ever heard the Daniel diet? People are like, we're going to lose weight. We're going to do the Daniel diet. Super biblical. We do vegetables and water. Notice that they were fatter at the end. Okay? Because, you know, in Babylon, fatter is better. Okay? So this was a supernatural thing, right? They're eating lower calorie food and they're getting fatter. Just so you know, you know, Daniel diet. If you want to be fatter. The other thing that's amazing about Daniel and his friends is how God blessed their their learning, and their intelligence, and they became super useful to the Babylonians, and that's all God blessing them. 
The other thing that Babylon would do, if, if assimilation didn't work, they would turn to intimidation. And for that, they would fire up the furnaces and get the lions out. Take a look at Daniel chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar has this idea of making this like 90-foot-tall golden statue. And he has this idea that like if you're anywhere near it and the band starts playing, you have to bow down. Okay? And this is a way of kind of drawing the nation together, I suppose. And he really didn't care like who you worshipped in private, but in public you needed to worship their gods, right? It was offensive if you didn't. You need to bow down. Every culture has this, guys. Every culture has particular idols and things that they expect us to bow down to, at least in public. Do whatever you want in private, but do what we say in public. Your workplace might have things like this, right? There's the joke that you're expected to laugh at. There's the lies you're supposed to tell. There's the gossip you're supposed to share in. There are the rules you're supposed to bend. The world says, you know, you can worship whatever you want at home, but in public with us, you worship our God. When the music plays, you have to bow down. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they won't do it. I don't know where Daniel is. He's probably on a business trip or something. But Nebuchadnezzar's furious. He's going to throw him in the fire. And then look at uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's response in verses 16 through 18. So this is in chapter 3. This is their response. Nebuchadnezzar's like, you've got to bow down or I'm going to burn you in this furnace. Okay? These guys are hardcore. And what, how do they respond? Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, that we will not worship the golden image you put down. Didn't you love that? They're like, God can deliver us. He can save us from this. But if he doesn't, we're still not going to do it. Don't you love that? It's so realistic. Because they have no assurance God's going to do this. God doesn't always deliver his people in these ways. But they say, if not, we're still not going to do it. And what's really cool about that, guys, is that it shows that they were following the Lord, not for what they could get from the Lord, prosperity, long life, and things like that. They followed the Lord because they wanted to get the Lord. The Lord was their treasure. And so whatever it took, they were willing to endure it. The Lord was their treasure. He was better than life itself. And they knew that they'd be rescued either way. If God saved their lives, great, they're rescued. If they died in the furnace, that's okay too, because they would immediately have happiness in the presence of the Lord. Either way, they're rescued. And that made these people spiritually fireproof, whether God was going to make them physically fireproof or not. And the same will be true for you. I mean, if God is your ultimate treasure, you will be spiritually fireproof. Death will just give you more of what you really wanted anyways. So they refuse, and Nebuchadnezzar throws them in the fire. And then he's in for a surprise, two surprises, really. They don't get burned, and there's someone else in there. Take a look at verse 24. And the king, Nebuchadnezzar, was astonished. He rose up in haste, and he declared to his counselors, didn't we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they said, oh, yeah, we did. In verse 25, he answered and said, well, I see four men unbound, and they're just walking around in the midst of the fire, and they're not burned. And the appearance of the fourth one is like the son of the gods. So here they are. They're like thrown in the fire. And they're just like, I don't know why they're strolling around in there, but they're just kind of strolling around just to show they're okay, right? And there's a fourth one in there, the son of the gods. I wonder who that could be. It's interesting. We'll, maybe we'll find out. Guys, when the world puts us into the fiery furnace, we can be certain that the Lord himself will join us in it. I think that's super helpful, guys. When the world puts us in the fiery furnace, we can be certain that the Lord will join us in it. You know, that he will make sure that no trial consumes you, right? And will be refined like gold. First Peter says this, 
In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Guys, God does not promise that we will avoid the furnace. There are people that will tell you that. I have no idea why that even works for a little while, because there's always so many people in the church that are in the furnace. It's like, oh yeah, believe and you won't you know, endure any hardship. Uh, you imagine a bunch of hands go up. Like, wait, what about me? You know, I'm doing it right now. Guys, God does not promise that we'll avoid the furnace. He does promise to be with us in it, and he promises to sustain us, and he promises that in the end we'll come out of the furnace better than we went in. That's what he does promise. And what's really cool as you read through Daniel is all these crazy things happen to him, like thrown in a furnace, you know, thrown in the lion's den, like things are constantly happening to him. And what's really neat is Daniel ends up living the entire 70-year exile. So he comes in as a teenager, and he makes it the whole way through. And he makes it through the, the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, his son, Belshazzar, uh, Darius, he lives through his reign, all the way to the reign of Cyrus. What does that tell us? It tells us that kingdoms come and go, guys, but God's people outlast them all. Isn't that amazing? It's like each one of those kings, they're just going to be here for a while. God's people outlast them all. And that's a huge message in Daniel, that God's kingdom will prevail against the kingdoms of this world. And that's something, guys, that the generation of the exile and the generations that came after it really needed to hear. Because God had promised his people, he promised Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation, right? He promises David, I'm going to put a king on your throne forever. Sure doesn't look like it in the exile, does it? Doesn't look like a great nation. Where's the king? You know, it looks like a mess. They needed to hear this. They needed to be assured that the kingdom of God will prevail against all the kingdoms of this world. And it's the same way for us today. You know, often the church in many places looks weak and marginalized. The kingdom of God seems small. And there's this assurance that he will prevail against all the kingdoms of this world, that he's more powerful. Nebuchadnezzar actually had a dream about this. Take out chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, which Daniel interprets for him. And if you look in verse 32, it's a dream of this like gigantic statue. The head's gold. Verse 32, the head is of fine gold, its chest is of silver, its middle and thighs are bronze, its legs are iron, its feet are iron and clay. And then he looks and he sees this stone. It says, it's a stone that was cut with no human hand, and it struck the image, this big statue in his dream, in the feet, and the whole thing comes down. It says, then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold all together were broken into pieces and they became like chaff in the summer of the threshing floor, and the wind carried them away. So not only crumbles, but all the parts just are gone. No trace of them can be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that he's that head of gold, and he says that each of the nations that come after him, uh, all these powerful nations that God's people tend to fear, were all the other body parts. Right? So it's all the kingdoms of this world. And he was showing how all those kingdoms will fall. And then he explains the stone. Look at verse 44. And in the, in the days of those kings, the king of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. Just as you saw a stone cut from the mountain by no human hand, that it broke the pieces of iron and bronze and clay and silver and gold. 
So he's saying that the kingdom of God is like this little, little rock, this little stone that's been carved out. And it wasn't by any human doing. It's completely by God. And that this stone, this, this kingdom of God, will triumph over all the kingdoms of this world. And we actually have seen this happen in history, right? Babylon, gone. It was super scary in its time. Babylon's gone. The Medes are gone. Medes actually beat the Babylonians, and they're gone. And the Persians are gone. And then even the Roman Empire, which seems super powerful, it's gone, right? But the kingdom of God continues to fill the world like a huge mountain. Just as the dream said. Isn't that amazing? Just as it said. Jesus talked about his kingdom this way. He said that the kingdom of God, and here it says like a little rock, and in his words he said it's like a little seed, like a little mustard seed, and it's planted, and it becomes this gigantic tree and fills the earth. And we've actually seen that happen, which is amazing. We've actually seen this prophecy fulfilled, and that we've seen the gospel start with just a tiny little nation and a tiny little group in that nation. And what? It's billions of people, right? Spread over the whole world. You know, it's, it's everywhere. You know, we think about countries like China and places like that where the gospel's spreading so enormously that they say in decades it could become a predominantly Christian nation if it continues on that trajectory. How crazy would that be? That would solve some problems. You know, less balloons. I don't know. Not the balloons, you know, like, so I don't know. Not the scariest thing they could do. Oh, yeah. People that listen to that later would be like, I don't know what that was about. This will not be a big issue later. But, guys, the, the gospel is spreading. It's like that little rock into a huge mountain. He's fulfilling the promises to Abraham to make God's people a great nation. And he's fulfilling the promise of David to be a king that will reign forever. And what's really cool in Daniel is that he gives that kingdom to the humble and he takes it from the proud. And we can see him uh, giving it to the humble actually in chapter 4. So chapter 4 is the conversion story of Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar is this like horrible person, right? This horrible, hideous ruler that everybody fears. And he gets saved. And we know he gets saved because he actually writes this chapter. So chapter 4 is actually Nebuchadnezzar. It's like the epistle of Nebuchadnezzar to the world. It even sounds like an epistle. It starts this way. King Nebuchadnezzar to all the peoples and nations and languages that dwell on the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. Just crazy. They'd be like, Nebuchadnezzar's like, peace be multiplied to you. I'm all about that. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High has done for me. And then he tells this conversion story. And it's a really interesting story. So Nebuchadnezzar once again has another dream. And he has this dream that there's this tree that grows in the center of the world. And it becomes this gigantic tree so that all the birds are nesting in it. And it, all of its fruit feeds the whole world. And, you know, the leaves are abundant and the fruit's abundant. And all these things are going. And I think he has a sense that this is him. So he's like, yeah, that's great. That's me. You know, that's totally me. But in the dream, a little bit later, there's a voice that comes from heaven that says, chop down the tree. Lob off its branches, drip its leaves, scatter its fruit, let the beasts of the field uh, flee from under it and the birds from its branches, and leave it as a stump on the ground, and band it with iron and bronze amidst the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven, let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods pass over him. So he's disturbed by this, obviously. And then he calls Daniel, and Daniel's disturbed by this. And he tells him, King Nebuchadnezzar, this is a warning. You need to repent. You're a prideful man. You need to repent. He says in Daniel 4, 27, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sin by practicing righteousness and your iniquity by showing mercy to the oppressed. 
that there may perhaps be a lengthening of prosperity. So he gets his dream, he gets warned, he does nothing. Actually, it gets worse. A year later, he's walking around his palace, and he's just thinking about how awesome he is, right? He's just like, I'm really awesome, and look at all the awesome things I've done. And then Daniel 4.31 says this, While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from you. You shall be driven from among men. You shall dwell with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. Seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and it gives to whomever he pleases. Immediately the words were fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from among men, ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagle feathers, and his nails like bird claws. Okay, so here's the most powerful man in the world, and God makes him insane. He goes insane. So he goes out in the field, and his hair grows all long and matted, and he gets these super long claws, and he's out there eating grass for seven years. It's just completely driven insane. And uh, it'd be crazy, right? You know, you send, like, it doesn't seem like they got rid of him at this point, which is interesting. They gave him a sabbatical. You could have seven years of a mental health break or something. I don't know. They kind of kept him around because they didn't replace him, which is so weird. And, you know, there'd be foreign dignitaries coming by, and they'd be like, hey, we want to see him. And they're like, he's not really available right now. <laughs> Who's that guy out there? You know, it's like, no, nobody. That's just a crazy guy we keep around. It's crazy, right? And it's a great image of sin, isn't it? Isn't it an amazing image of when like sin overtakes your life and enslaves you and you become insane, right? And all of us who have been in that place and later have repented have been like, I was crazy. What was I doing? You know, one of the Psalms, Psalm 73, says, I was like a beast before you. You know, he's got like a beastly mind. But God had to humble Nebuchadnezzar to save him, right? His pride kept him from turning to the Lord. How many of you guys have a testimony like that? Like, you're just so proud you wouldn't turn to the Lord. We don't think we need the Lord. We don't think we need his mercy. We think we're better than other people, like he did. We think we've actually done a lot of good things. You know, why wouldn't God accept me? I'm so great. If he wouldn't accept me, the problem's with him. Right? That's the mind of insanity, isn't it? You know, but notice what Nebuchadnezzar did right before he turned to the Lord. It's so cool. He says, I lifted up my eyes to heaven and my reason returned. I think that's super helpful. He lifted up his eyes and when he saw the Lord, he was changed. He had to look up, right? As long as Nebuchadnezzar looked down at others, he didn't see his need. He had to look up, right? As long as he looked around at his own accomplishments, you know, he continued in the insanity. He had to look up. He had to look up. And when he looked up and he saw a holy God, he knew exactly what he needed. He knew he needed mercy, and he turned to the Lord, and he got it. And you can too, if you confess your sins to him, bring your sins to him. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. You know, just like we talk about all the time when we do the confession and assurance, like he saves Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed God's temple. <laughs> he shamed God's people. He he beat them up continually, right? And yet, all he had to do was turn to the Lord. And all that sin was removed. And the Lord will change your life. You're like, my life's so messed up, I, I, I just don't know what he'd do with it. Did you see Nebuchadnezzar? Like, that's a messed up life. The guy's literally insane. There's no, there's no working with him. There's nobody that can help him. There's no medicine that's going to fix, you know, the whole ox eating grass, you know, out in the field thing. There's no pill for that. There's no therapy for that. 
There's no religion that like takes people like that and makes them better. Only Christ, right? And he'll change your life. Whatever mess you're in, it's not as bad as Nebuchadnezzar's mess. And that's why God had Daniel in exile. Isn't that amazing? God had Daniel in exile, and God has us in exile, because he wants to save people like Nebuchadnezzar. Why did God's people go? They, they were there because of sin, for sure. But the other reason was God wanted to save a wicked king named Nebuchadnezzar. He's your brother in Christ, as weird as that sounds. We'll see him in heaven. He'll be happy to tell the story again. So God gives the kingdom to the humble, but he also takes it from the proud. This won't take very long, but in Daniel 5, we have Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar. Belshazzar did not learn humility from his dad at all. He was having a huge party. He decides, you know what? Well, let's drink out of the vessels we took from the temple. That's always a great idea, right? And so they're partying using the vessels from the temple, and then a floating hand appears, okay? Daniel 5.5, 5, immediately a finger of a human hand appeared, no body, and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw what the hand wrote. So this is bad. This is where the idiom comes from, handwriting on the wall. You may wonder where it comes from. Well, the handwriting's on the wall for this. This is where it comes from, and the handwriting was on the wall. Daniel deciphered it, and it said that God had numbered Belshazzar's days. He was going to end them. He had weighed him and found him wanting, and he was going to take his kingdom away. And then God had him killed that very night. Another nation came in. They replaced him. He's gone. Guys, the handwriting is on the wall for all who reject the Lord. He opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He gives his kingdom to all who will trust in him. And the way he gives his kingdom is really interesting. So all the kingdoms of men are crumbling. All our personal kingdoms are crumbling too, by the way, guys. We all have a kingdom. We all have things that we're trying to build up, things we're trying to work for, things we're trying to like, you know, give ourselves security and meaning and purpose. All these things we hope in, they're all going down too. I mean, if the Babylonian kingdom's going down, yours is not more secure, okay? But all these kingdoms crumble, but God wants to give us, he does give us his kingdom as a gift, and he does it through the ultimate exile. This is super cool. Jesus Christ was the ultimate exile. I mean, talk about somebody that was living in a culture not his own. It was Jesus Christ, right? God the Son, the Holy One, became a man, and he lived in a world of sin. Jesus was the perfect, faithful exile. You think about it. Jesus so perfectly was in the world, but not of the world, but he was clearly here for the world, right? Jesus was in the world, but not of the world, but clearly for the world. Jesus never allowed himself to be assimilated into culture, right? He didn't let the pleasures of this world steal his loyalty from God. He, he didn't let the stories that this culture tells distract him from the gospel purposes he came for. He, he didn't let the names people call him or make him forget his true father. He didn't back down to intimidation ever. But what's so cool about him is that he not only did all that, but he was so completely here to love people too. You know, you have like complete lack of compromise with complete love in one person. That's the amazing thing about him, right? There's a lot of amazing things about him. But this is one of the amazing things about him is he was absolutely faithful to God, but always completely loved every person in front of him. He's perfect holiness with perfect love. He was never compromising, but he was never like cold and aloof either. You know, he was never hiding out from the world, right? He always went to the place of greatest need. And Jesus came to bless the world. He came to bless us by saving us from our sins. He came to take our place on the cross. He came to endure the ultimate fiery furnace, the wrath of God, not with us, but for us. That's a furnace we never have to go into. 
because Jesus endured it for us. Jesus endured the fiery furnace of the wrath of God, not with us, but for us, instead of us. He died in our place on the cross for our sins. For all of us and our pride, the pride of Nebuchadnezzar's like us. Because we read the book of Daniel and go like, that's me, daring to be a Daniel. And it's like, we're a lot more like Nebuchadnezzar. But he's making us like Daniel. But that's not the way you started. You weren't like half Daniel and just need a little help. You start as Nebuchadnezzar, and he's making you more like Christ. And then three days, right? Three days, he's, he's dead, and then he's, he's raised, he's alive and well. He came out of the fiery furnace unharmed, unsinged, and without so much as a smell of smoke. And then 40 days later, he ascends to his throne, and, and Josh had read this passage, but I'm going to read it again. This is a picture of his ascension. So Jesus, when he ascended, on this side, it looked pretty like, kind of odd, okay? They're talking to him. And it just says he went up and disappeared. And it's kind of like, oh, okay. Like, it's kind of a weird thing. I mean, it's cool, but it was odd. But on the other side is Daniel 7. This is what it looked like on the heaven side as Jesus ascended to his throne. I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. That was Jesus' favorite name for himself. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, Jesus ascended, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples and nations should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. King Jesus is reigning right now in heaven. He's bringing his kingdom into this world now through the Spirit and through his people, but he's going to bring the kingdom fully when he returns. And when he brings that kingdom fully when he returns, Daniel 12 says he's going to raise the dead. He says this, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. Those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Guys, Jesus is going to bring perfect justice, perfect peace, perfect joy to this world. His kingdom will fully come, and it will have no end. I don't know how much you're longing for that right now, but I would imagine a lot more than you used to be. And it's coming, guys. Our exile will be over, our mission will be done, and we're going to enjoy him forever in the world to come. Let's pray. Father, we just pray, Lord, that you would, well, that you would humble us, Lord, if there's any need for that here this morning in this room, we just pray, Lord, that you would give the grace of humility, give the grace of repentance, give the grace of turning. And if there's anyone here that does not know you, that hasn't submitted to your kingdom, I just pray, Lord, even now, even during communion, even during these next couple songs, that they wouldn't leave this place without looking up, seeing your holiness, and turning to your Son for righteousness, for salvation, for holiness, for acceptance. And we pray, Lord, too, for your people that are here, that living as exiles in this world. And I just pray that you would make us strong, that you'd make us strong by looking to your Son, Jesus, that you'd fill us with your Spirit, such that we wouldn't fear the kingdoms of this world, we wouldn't fear even the spiritual powers of evil in this world. But we know that you have conquered them all in your son, Jesus Christ. We pray we'd be like Jesus, that we would be in the world, 
but not of the world, but clearly here to bless the world. Give us that, we pray, Lord. Give us that heart of an exile that wants to love the people that we've been sent to. And Lord, make us bold to tell them about Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.